you have your Bible, take and turn with me to Psalm 111. Psalm 111. We've spent a few weeks now looking at the Word of God and the praise that we are to give to our Lord. A life of worship. What does it look like to live a life of worship? Being a Christian involves two aspects of worship, two kinds of worship. We have both personal worship and public worship. It is not right for a Christian to think that he can live his life on either side of that without embracing both. There are some people who think that they can live a life of personal worship and never have any public worship. They say, well, it's just me and God. I'll just go and live in the woods and read my Bible and I'll experience God on a personal basis. Besides, every time I go to church, I'm just surrounded by hypocrites. And I don't like that. I don't like going to church and sitting in a service and having to dress up and go in there at a specific time. Why can't I just experience God on my own? And there is a personal worship that is good, but that's carried too far that neglects public or corporate worship. There's also another side to this. As there are Christians, there are people who love to worship corporately. They love to gather together at church. They love the social aspect of seeing their friends and singing songs together. But the minute they go home, their Bible hits the shelf. And they never do any private worship. There's never a time throughout the week where this person will will take the Bible off the shelf or off their desk and open it on their lap and read God's Word and worship God privately. Both of these are very, very important. It's much more than just the public or the private. It has to be both. Because worship and praise is much more essential thing in your life than you could possibly ever imagine. In fact, a lot of people think as worship as something insignificant. But at the end of the message, I'm going to spend some more time showing us why this is the case. But today we're going to see truly an example of praise and worship. Just as Christ gives us the pattern of prayer in the New Testament that we call the Lord's Prayer, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Jesus gives us that pattern. Many times throughout the Psalms, we have patterns of praise. We have Psalms that are to guide us in our worship. In fact, a lot of times what I would encourage you to do, if you're struggling knowing how to personally worship God, is to read a psalm like Psalm 111 and worship back to God by reading and praying psalms like this one. Before we go any further, let's ask God's blessing on this uh, message. And as we look at it, may he open our hearts to his truth. Father, we ask today that you help us to see where we have fallen woefully short in our responsibility to praise you. I'm thankful that we have gathered together this morning in public praise. Lord, may you be with those who have neglected public praise and help them to see their need to come together. But also be with those, Lord, who have neglected their personal private praise. Lord, may you work in our hearts to show us where we need to change. And Father, I pray that we would be a people known to glorify and lift up your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Look with me in Psalm 111. We're going to begin in verse 1 where we see the personal praise must be public. He says, praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. First, what does it mean to praise God? This psalm really begins with a bang. It starts off with that word, praise the Lord, which in our English language is several words long. But in the Hebrew, it's one word, and it's a word you all, you, all of you already know. It's the word hallelujah. I don't know if you knew that, but when you see praise the Lord in the psalms, almost always it's the word hallelujah. 
and the Hebrew has three parts to it. Oh, the word hale means praise. H-A-L-L-E could be said as praise. And then lu is the part of the Hebrew word which means that it's a let us do this. It's a called a hortatory. It means let us do this. Let us go and do this. If you were to say let us go to, over here, you would use that lu part in that word. But hallelujah, let us means let us praise, but it's not complete without that last part of the word. And in most, a lot of Bibles is spelled with a J, J-A-H, but you say hallelujah because it is the first part of God's covenant name. We talked about this last week. God's covenant name in the Bible, as he explains himself, is the name Yahweh. Y-H-W-H in Hebrew, four letters, and it was a sacred name. So, so sacred that the Hebrews would not say it aloud. They would use different names. They would say different words when they came to that name. They would not even add the proper vowels to it because they were afraid. In fact, some of us are not even exactly sure how we're supposed to say that. But to our, the way we can tell, we believe that it's best pronounced Yahweh. And so by saying hallelujah, we are saying let us praise the Lord. In fact, that's exactly how the song Begins. Praise the Lord, beginning with a bang here, beginning with the excitement of the center of what good worship is, is we praise God. And to praise means to lift up. It means not to stay quiet. Have you ever been so excited you can't help but cheering? Now, last night I watched a football game a little bit, and I was not cheering very much. It was, a very, it was embarrassing for, both, for everybody, I think. I think everybody's a little rusty. But, but when, you, when, you, when someone scores a touchdown, we had this thing, and my, my wife is a little bit... She, she was a little bit, uh, I don't know how else to say this, weirded out by this uh, habit that we have when someone scores a touchdown or hits a home run. We would get up off the couch and we'd start cheering and hooting and hollering and, and getting excited. And, 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 and she just looks at us like, you guys are crazy. You guys are nuts. And she, the first time I watched a football game with her, I was yelling at the television. She turned to me. She said, you realize they can't hear you, right? It's not, vol- it's involuntary. It's just like, I don't, I don't plan to do that. It just happens. I just get excited and I start screaming and yelling. I jump off the couch and do some sort of crazy hoot and holler and it doesn't make any sense. No one would say, now, why did you do that? I don't know. I just got excited and I had to, I had to do something. That's what praise is. It's that you get excited about what God's doing and you can't help it. You have to praise. Praise is overflowing. It's a lifting up. You can't praise if you're sitting there with your mouth shut. You can't praise if you're not doing something. And he says, I'm going to call. He calls us to praise with my whole heart, with my whole being. We say the word heart there it just means you're a whole person. We are, to, we are called to praise God with everything that we have. Our whole being is full and we are just overflowing with praise. But where are we to praise? He says you are to praise God in the assembly of the upright. That is among other Christians. You are to go among other people. And you're to be among the congregation, among those group of people who fear God. You are to praise God among other people. It's not enough to keep the praise of God to yourself. That's wrong. The Bible says, praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart. I will praise him in the, uh, uh, in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. We are to not keep the praise within ourselves. We are to praise God. And for the Christian, worship and praise are absolute necessities. As a Christian, if you're failing to worship God, you're missing one of your primary responsibilities. God has called you to worship, not just publicly. It's great to be here in church and singing and singing and singing and praising God here. That's great. But when you go home as well in your personal life, not only in your public life, but some of you also need to make sure we sing and praise God in our public life. Specifically here, he praises God among others. 
Now, it seems that this psalm here, Psalm 111, God has given his children a catalog of things we can praise God for. He lists them. In fact, what's amazing about this is that he, pray, he talks about we should praise God for his works, for his word, and for his character. That's how I've divided it up. But what we have this morning, and you might want to jot a note of this, and I don't know if it's noted in your Bible. Maybe if you have a study Bible, it is. But Psalm 111 is what's called an acrostic psalm. Do y'all remember acrostics when you were younger? You used to do like an acrostic. It would be like your, your teacher in first grade would have this on her bulletin board. It'd say something like character. And it would spell it up and down. And then every, every letter represented something like consistency, you know. And H would be, I don't know, I'm making this up as I go along. Uh, honesty. Thank you. Good job. His, yeah. She's a teacher. She knows how this works. Uh, you know, and you go down the list and each one of these represents each one of these characters represents something. Well, there's a lot of acrostics in the Bible, especially in the Psalms. And this is an acrostic that is an ABC acrostic. It starts with the first letter of the alphabet, goes to the second letter and the third. And it's actually every verse you'll see is divided into two segments, except for the last two verses. They're divided into three segments. And each segment begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And you can see A, Aleph, Bimel, Aleph, Gimel, Daleth, Hay, etc. You see them go A, B, C, D, E, F, G, if we were doing it in English. And, and, you know, another acrostic would be Psalm 119. That's probably the most famous acrostic where there, there are eight verses in a row for each Hebrew alphabet letter. If you go and look at Psalm 119 in your Bible, you'll see they're divided into eight verse sections with a header with, that starts with each Hebrew. There's a lot of these. And this is that way, too. So each verse is an acrostic. And because of the way this, ver- this, this uh, psalm is given to us, it doesn't really follow an easy-to-understand um, uh, flow. It's more of like an all-encompassing idea of why we should praise. And so in following this str- the structure, we're going to see in the next several verses, I'm going to weave several different things and going here, there, yonder. We're going to connect verses. You'll see what I mean in a minute. And I might be having you jump from here to here, but you'll see the point. But we'll see the second point that we have to notice is that personal praise must not only be public, it must exalt God. That's really the primary purpose of our praise to him is to exalt God. That's our number one goal is to lift up, to exalt God. This is the object of our praise. Number one, what must we praise God for? We praise God for his works, for his works. Look with me, if you would, in verse two. The works of the Lord are great. They are great works. The works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. We need to recognize that God's working. God's works are great. This word works repeats itself throughout the whole psalm. It's a very important idea that God is doing things. And it says that his works are identified as being great. And I don't want to just pass over that word because that means something that is large and impressive, something that's beyond human ability. In fact, in the very beginning, the first kind of time this word is used is when God creates the sun and the moon, he calls them great lights. Let me ask you a question. Has it ever occurred to you? This has occurred to me before. These are the kinds of things that occur to me. I'm, I'm going into Walmart and I look up and I notice they have their parking lot lights on and it's the middle of the day. Have you ever noticed that? They have these LED lights and they just run them all the time. They, I guess nobody wants to program a timer. But, but they, there they are. I walk in and I'm like, why would they do that? That makes no sense. Like here I am in the middle of the day. It's 95 degrees. It's hot. It's roasting. I sweat from the time I get out of the car to get inside. I mean, it's, it's, the sun is bright. And you don't even notice because the lights are on, but they're not really of any use. They are insignificant in light of the big light. 
if you if you just think about how insignificant it is that they're running their LED lights while the sun is out. That is the greatness of God's works compared to what we can do. Now, we can't do hardly anything outside of God's power, but God's greatness is so overshadowing, is so powerful, it's so enormous that it just blows anything we can do out of the water. His response or his his works are great. So what is our response to those works? Well, we could coil, recoil back. We could be fearful of them. We could be afraid. We could be intimidated. But rather, he says, no, 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 you don't be intimidated. You should, they should study the works of God. You should look into, you should investigate the works of God because you'll have pleasure in them. When you take pleasure in God's works, you can learn them and study them. Not everybody takes pleasure in God's works. Some people find the works of God to be offensive, to be strange, to be problematic. But those of us who know God, excuse me, those of us who know God, those of us who love him, have experienced his grace. We desire God's works. We see them and we are we are studying them. We're inquiring of them. We think about what God has done. Let me just ask you, when's the last time you caught yourself thinking about what God does? Like, just, just catch yourself daydreaming about God's works. That That is what it, a worshiping mind does. We tend to think of worship as being only something that you do on a schedule. Like, I get up in the morning, I read my Bible, drink my coffee, I worship God. That's great. That's important. But the more you do that, you'll actually find yourself. This is a, this is a neat little trick. <laughs> you'll actually find yourself worshiping the rest of the day, too. You'll find yourself sitting in, in line at the DMV, and instead of swearing at the person in front of you, you are glorifying God. You're thinking, man, it's just such a beautiful day. God is so good. Or you remember an answered prayer, like you just forgot, and then, oh yeah, I've been praying about that, and God answered that. Lord, thank you for answering that. And you get to turn anywhere into a worship service, because you are thinking about, you are studying the works of God. Look with me in verse 3. He gives us in this first part of verse 3 that he says his works are not only great, they are glorious. His work is honorable and glorious. Two attributes of God's word. First, let's look at the second one. He says his works are glorious. That means they're pointing to the majestic nature. There's a grandness and a majesty in the works of God. God's works are great and majestic. They are impressive. They take your breath away when you take a look at what God has done. And then he says they are remembered works. Look with me in verse 4. His works are long-lasting. He, he has made his wonderful works to be remembered. Now, that root word, wonderful, is the same root that is used in Isaiah. A few years ago, I preached uh, from Isaiah chapter 9 on the names of Messiah. He shall, you know, unto you us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be what? Wonderful. Remember that word, wonderful? That word, wonderful, doesn't just mean great. It doesn't mean like, oh, I had a wonderful sandwich. The word, wonderful, means full of miraculous things. It means miraculous. It means supernatural. Wonders means supernatural works. And so when he says here, he has made his wonderful works, God's supernatural works are done to be remembered. When you think back on the Bible, what kind of supernatural works are we talking about? Well, think about the crossing of the Red Sea. That's number one. We think about that. We think about the crossing of the Jordan River. We think about the plagues in Egypt. We think about the miracles of Elijah and Elisha, even the miracles of Jesus and the apostles. These could be classified as God's wonderful works. And what are we to do with these wonderful works? We're to say, oh, God doesn't work that way anymore. That kind of, that's kind of sad. 
No, we're to be remembering them. We are to be excited about them. He didn't just do these things to impress us. God did these things so we remember him. Remembering God is like, I say this often, is like building memorials to God. It is that you establish something that reminds you of God. You go back to that and you remember what God has done over and over again. If there are things in your life that are miraculous things, someone gets saved, someone gets healed, there's a miraculous thing that happens. God opens a door. God moves you in a direction. God does something. Do something to remember that wonderful work as part of your praise and worship to him. The number one miracle that God has done in my life is to save me from the pit of hell. God has rescued me from my life of sin. He's rescued me. And I can think back and remember how much God has done. And I think, thank God every day. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. What a wonderful thing that is. And that's the number one miracle. All of us, if you're saved, you can look back on that day. You can create a memorial of that and say, God's wonderful works are to be remembered. God is so, so good. And we can remember these miraculous works because they are, notice they are good works. They are good works. Look at verse 3. If you go back to one verse you've already read, he says his work is not only glorious, his work is honorable. You see that word, honorable? He does things that are honorable and good. This is in stark contrast to the ones who are known not to do good. God always does good, but the Bible has these pictures of us as people. Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. See the contrast between the wicked and God? The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have altogether become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Yet God is one who does good. And we aren't. Paul actually uses this phrase or these these verses in Romans chapter 3 before he says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He quotes these verses and says there's none that does righteous. No, not one. They're good works. Look at verse 7. We see that they are works of, it says in verse 7, the works of his hands are verity and justice. What God does is, is verity, is truth, and justice. I want you to notice first that it says that God is an active God. He's not, like some would have you think, aloof. He's not disconnected from the world. But rather, his acts are based in truth. God is a true God, and he is a just God. He deals with the wicked according to what they deserve, and he will bless those who trust in him. You know, life might not always be fair, but we can be confident that our God is just. And even when life does not seem fair, you can rest in the fact that God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And we can rest in him. And third, we see in chapter or verse 8b, he says that his works are done in truth and an uprightness done. Same word there as the works of God. In what way are God's works done? They are done with truth, like we've already mentioned, and uprightness. That means they are, they are something to be, be held up. They are good and, uh, and honorable. We see this amazing truth here that he is working with good works, but also powerful works. Verse 6. He shows his power by giving the nation of Israel the land of other nations. He has, verse 6 says, He has declared to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. As you read your Bible, the story of the Bible is God takes a very small nation like the nation of Israel. Really, he doesn't have a whole lot going for them. And they're actually slaves when he takes them out of Egypt and makes them a great nation. And then here, 
He shows them the power of His works by them taking over the land. The the power, the strength, the ability of His works. These are God's powerful, good works. So what is the application of this? We are to praise God for His works. Uh, Look with me, if you would, in in the book of Revelation. I have it up on the screen here. Revelation chapter 15. John shows us an image of heaven where they sing the song of Moses. This is the oldest song in the Bible. This is a song that they sing into the future. In fact, he says, and I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire is a vision of heaven and those who have the victory over the beast and over his image and over the mark and over the number of the name standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing the songs of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the lamb saying great and marvelous are your works, Lord God almighty, just and true are your ways. O kings of the saints who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name for you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. When we here on earth praise the Lord for his wonderful works, you know what we're doing? We're reflecting the scene in heaven. When we get to praise God for his wonderful works, we are reflecting, we are fulfilling what Jesus' prayer was instructed to his disciples, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We get to reflect the beauty and the praise of heaven. We worship God for his works, but also we worship God, we praise God for his words. We are thankful to God. We praise Him for His Word. When God speaks, He speaks with authority. I have become very aware that my Word does not carry as much authority as it used to in my house. I had little children running around, and I said, would everybody be quiet for a moment? Didn't do anything. I said, hey, shh, I need to, we need to talk about something. And everybody's still talking, 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 talking. And finally, I had to raise my authoritative, manly, daddy voice. And that seemed to work a little bit better. We have, to, we have, you know, sometimes we have authority when we speak. Other times we don't. Sometimes we're, people pay attention to us. Other times they don't have anything to do with us. And you know, when God speaks, his words have authority and his words have power because he is first faithful to his promises. We see that in chapter 111, verse 5. He says he will ever be mindful of his covenant. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. When we say that God is ever mindful. We mean that he is faithful to the promises he makes. Covenants are special. Covenants are a special uh, Bible kind of promise between two, two people. And covenants always involve obligations and responsibilities between the two people. Blessings and obligations. When God makes a covenant with Abraham, God blesses Abraham. He says, I will bless you. And I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But Abraham had responsibilities to God. In fact, in our marriages, we call it the marriage what? The marriage covenant. A covenant of marriage is a promise between two people that involves responsibilities and blessings. There are blessings to be in a marriage. You have covenant relations with another person. You have a a wonderful fellowship and a blessing of being with that person. You have the ability to start a family and and a unity and one flesh between two people. You have this this single focus, but there's also a lot of responsibilities that are accompanied with that. You just don't get that blessing without the responsibility. And God here is mindful of his covenants. The old covenant, called the Old Testament, was established at Sinai with the people of Israel. The people were not always faithful to God's covenant, but God promised in Jeremiah 31 that there was coming a new covenant. Jeremiah 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Notice, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their heart, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sins I will remember no more. Jesus established this new covenant in the Gospels. At the Last Supper, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the what? The new covenant. That's what he's talking about. The new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. God is always mindful of his covenants. He's always faithful to his promises. We can praise the Lord because he's faithful to his word. He is trustworthy. And how does he show that he's a trustworthy God? Is his wisdom or he promises to provide for his own? Look at verse 5a, if you would. He has given food to those who fear him. We continue here. He has given food. Think about the manna and the quail in the wilderness. And he keeps the covenant and redeems his people. Verse 9, God has shown his promise here. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Most people believe this psalm was written in the post-exilic time period, meaning that when he talks about redemption, he's talking about the gathering of the people, the nation, back from faraway lands and back to Israel. But we see, secondly, that his wisdom is good. His promises are good. His wisdom is good. In verse 7, the end of that, he says, All his precepts are sure. They stand forever and ever. God's precepts are about his wisdom, his way of doing things. God's way is established. It's sure. That word sure is where we get our word amen. It is established. And when you say amen, you mean let it be. You mean yes, sir. You mean absolutely. I agree. And here he says God's words God's precepts are amen. His wisdom is good. And God's precepts, verse 8, they stand fast forever and ever. They don't fade with fashion and age. We've all been around for about two or three uh, cycles of, of um, uh, you know, fashion. You know, at one point this was good, and then it goes out of fashion, then it comes back in, then, it, then it's no longer good, then it comes back in. And we see these cycles happen. Many of you have been longer than that. You've seen all kinds of uh, cycles. You say, I remember when, I, I still get this sometimes. I hear people say, well, I remember when that was, when I was growing up, that was in, but it's not anymore. And, and, but you know, God's words are not that way. God's words are not in and out of fashion. They don't fade with time. They stand fast forever and ever. We praise God for his works. And also we praise God for his character. Notice in verse three, he says, and his righteousness endures forever. His righteousness the righteousness of God, when we talk about God's character, we can say, Lord, we thank you for being righteous. You don't have to worry about God being fickle or God changing his mind about who he is. He is also gracious and compassionate. We see that in verse 4. The Lord is full or gracious and full of compassion. He is kind. That's what gracious means. He's willing to forgive and being compassionate, he is a loving God. And the characteristic of compassion and love in the Bible is someone who's willing to love and to give. Giving is associated with love in the Bible. We love and we give. God so loved that he gave. And we as believers need to love and give to one another. 
Think about the other person. Give to them. First John chapter 4 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love comes from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And in this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. You see how God's love is revealed? That God gave? And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation or payment for our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. God is full of compassion. He is full of love. His righteousness is forever. His graciousness and compassion are forever. And lastly is that He inspires awe. A-W-E. He inspires awe. In verse 9, the last part of that verse, He says, Holy and awesome is His name. The name of God is the character of God. We talk about God's name. It means something more than it would be my name or your name. We just I use names as identifiers. God's name refers to his character and also to his reputation. And it says his name is holy. That means it's special, it's unique, it's separate, it's set apart. The holy God we serve, the holy God we praise, the holy God we worship, he is unique, he's different. He's different from the world. That's why when the world goes this way, Christians often are going this way. Because the God we serve is different from the gods of the world. But there's a second word here, and that is the word awesome. And this word has been used a lot. In fact, to many people, awesome is a good skateboarding trick highlight. Or an ESPN reel. Wow, that was awesome. That's incredible. Wow, what an awesome job he did. You did a great job. In fact, my kids, when they do piano lessons, they have stickers that say awesome! Exclamation point that they put on their little things and they check off. And they're so excited to show me their stickers that say awesome. But, but that is not what awesome means in this context. Because my kids can play their little piano tune and I can say, awesome job. But I don't really mean the same way that this is. This means inspiring awe in our hearts. It means that when you see God's works, that you are taken aback with wonder. And there's a certain amount of wonder that a lot of us have lost when it comes to the beauty and joy and greatness of our God. That we are too busy looking down in our life, whether it's at our phones or whether it's at the world around us. And, and there's, there's often something said when you go to New York City or go to a big city, you can always tell the tourists because they're looking up. They're amazed by how high the buildings go. And you can always tell the locals because they're looking down. They don't care about the buildings anymore. They just got to get where they're going. A lot of us need to get back to where we're looking up at the awesomeness and the amazing beauty of God. We are, should be filled with awe. C.S. Lewis said, I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We should be inspired by God. Awe-inspired. We should, when we, sometimes when you read your Bible, you should be so struck by the power and beauty of God that you just need to step back for a moment and take it in. I fear a lot of us have become way too comfortable with the things of God so that we're not awe-inspired anymore. But to praise God, the amazing thing about praising God is that the more you praise God and the more you lift Him up, the easier it is to be awe-inspired by Him. Lastly, personal praise must lead to a godly living. Praise and worship is connected to how we live our lives. 
He closes this out with verse 10. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Notice there is an inner man and an outer man aspect to this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. talks about your heart, your inner man. I can't see. No one else can see but you and God. That inner man needs to fear God. That is where things start. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom just means proper living. Proper living. Living out what the Bible has to say. Most of the Bible is full of this idea of wisdom or skilled living. Living in accordance with God's way and God's way he sees the world. We're going to live our life in accordance with how we see the world. And if we live with wisdom, God's wisdom, we'll live with the fear of God, which means proper respect towards God. Go back to verse 5. We know God provides for those who fear for him, those who fear him. But sometimes the way he provides is not just directly giving to us, but to show us how we can have success through wisdom. And without the fear of the Lord, you'll never understand proper wisdom. Now, humanism and secularism today actively deny the fear of God and deny the fear of the Lord, they will soon find themselves working against that. You see this all around you. People who are so confused and they are so uh, just befuddled with their lives because they have denied God. And in denying God, they have embraced things that simply do not work and do not make sense. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. First, we need to see, there it is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We see in verse 10 again, he says, a good understanding have all those who do his commandments. We need to live in obedience to God's word. If we, if we have a good understanding of these things, if we live in obedience to God's word, we will actually do the commandments. Our life will flow out. There's the inner man aspect of fearing God, the outer man of obeying God. The last part of this is in verse 10 when he says that an obedient life will lead to continual praise. His praise endures forever. We should have no reason to stop praising the Lord. We should praise him today. We should praise him tomorrow. We should praise him every day because he is good. And his praise endures when we live a godly life. It's amazing that the authenticity of our worship is connected to the holiness of our lifestyles. I think you'll find it to be true that as you walk away from God, the more you engage in sin, the more you engage in things that are contrary to God's will and you neglect God, you know it's going to be harder and harder to worship God. The first thing you'll find is that your private worship begins to disappear. You have fewer and fewer time with God, and the time you spend with Him is not very sweet. And as you indulge in sin, as you are connected to sin rather than God, you will find that the Word of God becomes a stranger to you. And the problem, I believe, for many of us is that we are incredibly self-centered when it comes to these things. There's a spiritual sickness that has permeated our culture since the beginning of time and churches since Pentecost itself centeredness. A lot of us Christians have spent entirely too much time focusing on what makes us happy, what we think will make us excited, rather than realizing that God is the greatest source of joy imaginable. And to praise God means we've, instead of praising God, we've turned into self-worshipping, self-praising, self-exalting people. We're quick to tell people how good we are and how amazing we are at everything. Go on social media and look at all your friends and how much they promote themselves and how good they are at things. And people are constantly asking for uh, people to, to tell them how good they are. And we want more accomplishments under our belt. We want our vast experiences to mean something. We, we talk about our gifts and abilities, but do we speak so freely about God? Why are we so happy to throw out how good we are and our, 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 our abilities, but yet we don't praise our Lord? 
I quoted C.S. Lewis earlier, and I'm very thankful that uh, Peggy Fraser sent me this quote from C.S. Lewis earlier when we started this series, and I think it fits aptly here. Lewis says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep to tell one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. Worship is the consummation of joy. Our joy is not complete until it is expressed in worship. It is out of his love for you that God created you to worship. And I believe this is true. If you are joyfully thankful for your God, you will burst forth in praise. And what's the remedy for our self-centered culture that we have? We're constantly praising ourselves, we're lifting up ourselves, we're focused on ourselves, we're looking at ourselves. The remedy for our self-centered culture is to worship and praise our God. So many of us need to get on our face today and admit that we have fallen so woefully short here. We're obsessed with self. We need to repent and focus on worshiping Him. It's time to be honest. How is your life of personal praise before God? Are you consistently in the Word of God? Are you spending time devoting yourself to Him? Do you have personal devotions? Too many people have neglected their personal walk with God. No many, so many of us aren't growing. We aren't responding. We're not in the habit of responding to God's truth. Number two, are you praising God for what He's done in your life, or do you take the credit? So many of us think that think good things that happen are not really coming from God. They're coming because we just worked really hard and we made it happen. And we don't recognize that God's works, remember, God's works are great. So we shouldn't take credit for things that happen to us. We should instead recognize that God has given them to us. That God is the one who deserves the praise. What we really need, friends, is a heart that is geared towards praising God. That you poke us and joy comes out. And I hope this week that you can praise God, those around you, those in public, and that privately some of us need to get back in the habit of developing a personal praise time with our Lord.